Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on WLPN. This week, Lumpin' Radio spoke to a prolific legend in the graffiti community, chatted about a legendary lost Chicago novel, and discussed mass incarceration in Cook County. All this plus the Trump Diaries and much more, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for August 3rd, 2018. Radio Free spoke to Tyru Slang-Jones and Lucas Kay about graffiti, Afrofuturism, and typography. Slang discussed how Marvel Comics influenced his work, why trains make great canvases, and how a really good vandal can still catch his eye. Radio Free with John Daly airs every Tuesday, drive time at 4 p.m. And today we're joined by two very special guests. I think actually, Slang, you've been on the show before, I yeah. believe. Yes, I uh, Tyru Slang-Jones and Lucas Kay, who are behind the current exhibit, Captured Light, that's up here at the Co-Prosperity Sphere right now. Slang, as you may know, I believe is the first art, artist to be featured on Art in the Mart. Is that correct as well? Yeah. Yes. And is a legendary graffiti artist here in Chicago. Guys, welcome to Radio for Bitchport. Uh, thank you, Jamie. Thanks thank for you. letting us be Glad here. to be here. So I want to start out a little bit for folks that don't know. Slang, you've been around for, for quite a long time, and I want to get to what Captured Light is is in a moment, but can you take us through a little bit of, of your background as really a pioneering uh, graffiti artist and tagger in the city of Chicago? Yeah, um, it was part of the earlier movement. Pra- practically when hip-hop was born, you know, I was present. I was there. I'm 48 years old, um, drawing since I was four years old, so when graffiti came along, that was just a new medium or a new way to get up or show my work. Mm-hmm. Of course, it was illegal, but... Mm-hmm. Pioneering graffiti artist. When it first started, when we first, when we all had to identify each other without, you know, social media or current technology, when everyone found each other and saw who each other was and you met them personally. So it was that movement. It was, you know, it was the renegade art movement. It was the artists that got up and used the trains as our canvases. Now, let's talk a little bit about that, because I grew up in New York City for, for a period, oh, okay. and that was during the period when people were bombing, ah, okay. you know, all over the place. So you saw it. Yeah, and I remember uh, people had rap sheets longer than my arms, because it, yeah. it was very, I don't think people necessarily know, graffiti today has become um, almost commodified. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say that, because I, graffiti, I think, is also um, a respected art medium. Yes. But we should talk about a little about the fact that it has become co-opted maybe and gentrified yes, yes, a little bit it's become a, it's become like any other legitimate art movement people yeah. are paying for it and i think that goes to, to show you've got an exhibit in a gallery right mm-hmm. now obviously which probably would not have been the case in what 1979 oh, definitely people not. were chasing you off the trains yeah exactly some of some of the places where i got chased from the actual buildings over in the wicker park area is where at 14 years old i came up with the name slang and i lived right there in the building noble square the Bill Emporium, I actually did their branding. You know, I designed their logo and um, did the first murals in the first Emporium and then one or uh, two other ones for two other locations. And um, the building that I had to come visit for the initial meeting to start, you know, the process mm-hmm. was one of the buildings I got chased away from and had to hop through the blue line gates and run down to run down to the platform from the side outside down in, you know, the subway for, what, Division. Mm-hmm. That was kind of a sneak getaway. We used to actually jump that thing for to save 50 Cent, which was crazy, mm-hmm. so we could play <laughs> video games. Could have died at any time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but go ahead. No, tell us a little bit, because I, I think people don't really understand that era. That was a much um, looser era in a lot of ways. I yeah. mean, you guys were doing it. You were paying for your own materials. Mm-hmm. You were doing it really for the love that— Really what? wasn't paying for it, but— Yeah, well, but you're stealing I was paint. afraid to steal, yeah. but I had good buddies that— 
you know, you create a diversion and the store is clear. Uh-huh. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what really attracted you, though, to using trains and buildings as a canvas uh, when there were other mediums out there. It's, it's an unusual choice. Influence, influence. Everything is influence. Someone, you see someone else getting up. Like, think about it. You got a mural. You got a muralist. Artists. We all are inspired by the things that we love or feel a connection with, or the things that just motivate us to feel good. You know, some people different things, but for the most part, seeing that there was, you know, one of my big, my biggest and really first thing influence and really seeing graffiti for being something different, of course, was the opening credits for Welcome Back, Cotter. Okay. They would show those trains going by, and that's, right. that was our window into New York. Of course, a lot of movies and documentaries came out after that, but that initial spark was like, wait, that's something different from what the guy was doing when he was just painting you know, the neighborhood mural or the community mural right. in the neighborhood. These were trains that went across the map. Like I said, we started using it as a canvas, but all, for the most part, graffiti started out as artists personalizing their signature, trying to write something more stylized, trying to create their own style of fonts mm-hmm. um, the base um, the earlier stages of graffiti is kind of just like what I do like I kind of take a lot of graffiti actually what the process that me and Luca are using in capture light is these are all one-liners so get to get your signature to a certain point we would actually just develop or you know emulate t- tie in other things that had nothing to do with graffiti or urban culture mm-hmm. and just try to form these letters we're basically Making making our own font styles, beefing them up, bubbling them up, making them look like the, you know, the BAMs and the POWs and the comic books and stuff like that. So everybody was trying to customize or take their stuff to a different level. So my my influence directly comes from personalized signature. And um, one of my favorite artists, um, graffiti artist Scheme from New York, actually made um, a point when um, I first met him. He made the statement of our first... Um, spark of creativity. He was talking about how much of shame it was they're going to take, um, you know, handwriting um, cursive out mm-hmm. of, you know, the curriculum as far as school. Mm-hmm. And he was like, our first time that we come in to identifying ourselves as an individual is one when we discover or create our um, signature. You know, and that's not just for artists. That's for everyone. Everyone, once you start to write your name or you distinctly try to find or create this little extra something to your name, it's personalized. So, mm-hmm. It's art in a sense. So the tags itself is tied to our creative um, inspirations in a sense. I want to loop Luke in in a minute, but yeah, I, yeah. Do, I do want to ask you before we get to that, uh, and there's a lot to unpack here. Were you interested in, in typography? And, and oh, yeah, heavily, heavily, yeah. heavily. Um, before I even got into graffiti, I was going through the Sunday Sun-Times or the Tribune my grandmother laid out. Every comic strip in any car- character I would emulate, I'd also emulate those cartoonist font styles, which is usually ju- hand-drawn or their own personal style mm-hmm. of doing um, branding. Mm-hmm. So if a movie was coming out, one of my biggest um, attributes, I think, to graffiti is um, earlier off, I started working with the idea, the concept of 3D, but that mm-hmm. 3D style was influenced from the logo of the Conan, you know, Conan oh, okay. the Barbarian. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh-huh. so I started doing chisel letters on trains, probably trains and walls a little bit after 85. Okay. So but what, I was drawing it at first, but the first time I really got it up. I gotcha. Was, so that would be the Marvel comics, the Barry Windsor Smith stuff yes, too? Yes, yes, a lot of them, yeah. Okay. Yeah, everybody, everybody, John Byrne, Neil yeah. Adams, we can, you know, Jack Kirby, of course. Of course, yeah. Course. Jack Kirby's influence is chosen pretty much, I would say, more than half, if not more than that, in graffiti, too. 
Yeah, that's a good point. There's certain things like the little bubbles and crackles mm-hmm. you see in that. The Those Kirby are crackle. Kirby crackles. Yeah, yeah, that's what that is. All the writers, we were all directly inspired and influenced from, you know, decades of, com- you know, comic the comic movement. Yeah. yeah. that's. I mean, that's interesting. Let's get back to that in a second because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, I was reading an interesting book by Yatasha Womack about Afrofuturism and how okay. a lot of uh, contemporary uh, African-American art is influenced by yeah. comic books. But I want to put a pin in that. Luke, it's time to bring you into the discussion. First of all, what is your part in this exhibit? And I guess how did you guys hook up and, and, and how did you particularly get interested in this sort of stuff? Um, well, Slang and I, uh, we were friends um, that just kind of met at a coffee shop with mutual enjoyment of art. And that happened for a couple years. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just out riding my bike one one day down Hubbard at night. And I took my bike light off and made a light painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I showed it to Slang because mm-hmm. that's who I just thought to show it to. Mm-hmm. And he's like... He's like, why don't we go out and do this? And I was like, wow. You know, I was like, yeah, if you want to go out with me, you know, <laughs> that, you know, to do this project, let's, let's try it out and see what happens. So mm-hmm. that's kind of, you know, was the start of it. And let's explain this a little bit for people. Obviously, this is radio, not television, so they mm-hmm. can't see the images. But okay. the, the exhibit you've got up, Captured Light, is, is a series of uh, photographs that, uh, capture using long exposures, drawings that you've done with light. And it's it's not the same as, uh, I think people maybe thought it was like augmented reality yeah, or it yeah, was Photoshop. Photoshop. It's not. It is actually a long exposure take of, of one of you using a light and you're creating figures that then you can only see once the, the film is developed. Yes. Um, there, are, there are words, there's a picture of a bird, there's dinosaurs, there's stuff like that um, in this exhibit, which is... It, it's it's actually very, uh, to my mind, very technically complex, candidly. I, I think it's a lot deeper than even I had initially thought of it, you know, because I think I, when I saw the image at first, I was like, oh, this is Photoshop over this. And mm-hmm. no, I mean, there's a film of you guys in the field and you're actually painting with a light and you mm-hmm. there's no there's no reference. Once you make the line, it's mm-hmm. gone. Yeah. So to me, that was very interesting and very compelling. Um I, I guess, how did you guys figure out how to position this stuff in space? That that seems to me just mind-blowing that you can, uh, without having any sort of line reference at all, you know, do complex pictures just with sheer memory. How did, how did, the, yeah, how did you guys do that's this? That's obsession. <laughs> years and years of obsession. And uh-huh. all the mixed things I've done, like, I, you know, from the graffiti. From uh-huh. I was, you know, I was a cartoon animator for about seven years, freelance for about... Mm-hmm. I mean, seven years and freelance for about three years after yeah. that. So heavy in all art forms, influenced by so many things. And then I love the idea and the concept of simplicity being the ultimate sophistication. So, mm-hmm. you know, doing a lot of branding, brand identity development, I found different ways of streamlining and simplifying things, which also is an attribute of breaking down characters in animation. So what I would actually do is um, I, what I'm actually doing is actually impromptu for the most part, because Everything they were doing is every character is different. I may do two birds, but you, as you see, we have double right. birds, and then then we have ones where they look like a simple outline of a thrush or something like right. that. So um, I'm just taking it's a mixture of intuition, spontaneity, and you know everything that I've drawn through thousands and thousands of hours, you know, for over 44 years. That's and and Luke, I mean. 
it, it seems to be such a challenge. You, you handle the photography end of it as well. Is that correct? Yeah. He's the locations, the photography, okay. everything that gets done. I, okay. just, I just draw yeah, lights. Um, so, I mean, I kind of spot locations when I can. Sometimes uh-huh. it's even I'm driving to work and on my rear view mirror, I see a, an exit that's just open under construction. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that would be a cool spot. Mm-hmm. And and we just set it up. I'm the, I look at it, I'm a musician, so I'm the rhythm section. Okay. I, I'm the drums and the bass and- He actually is a musician. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and, I, set, and I set the background for my, my star, my, my, mm-hmm. the, the singer, the guitar player, mm-hmm. and then Slaying creates these amazing images, you know, in the, just this backdrop. Mm-hmm. And it's a reaction back and forth of him responding to you know, him responding to what, you know, the, the background is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I see that he drew, a, you know, an old, an old pickup truck on mm-hmm. the, on the exit that I was talking about, you know, and, and yeah, and that's basically kind of how I, I fit into it or I look. How do you, how do you look, what do you look for in a location? Um, I look for somewhere quiet in the city, um, somewhere that people aren't maybe usually looking, okay. um, you know, and, it's not like an I'm looking for like urban decay or like something broken down, but those just happen to be the places that are somewhere where you can just kind of take away everything and just be there. She started to wonder when the current of the current day starts. This is Hell spoke with author and historian C. Riley Snorton about the line connecting the black experience with transness. The author of Black on Both Sides, Snorton discussed passing, the down low, and the racial history of the trans identity. This is Hell airs every Sunday at 10 a.m. Blackness and transness have a lot more in common than you likely think. Here to tell us how they are connected and what that reveals about both, C. Riley Snorton is author of the award-winning book, Black on Both Sides, A Racial History of Trans Identity. Welcome to This is Hell, Riley. Thanks so much, Chuck. It's great to be uh, in conversation with you and, and on the program. You can find Riley on Twitter at C. Riley Snorton. You write about Tamara uh, Dominguez, died on uh, Monday, August 17th, 2015, in a Missouri hospital after sustaining injuries from being struck repeatedly with a sports utility vehicle in a church parking lot in northeast Kansas City. Her unidentified boyfriend told the Kansas City Star she had been living as a woman in the United States for at least seven years after leaving her native Mexico to escape discrimination for being transgender. She had a lot of dreams. You add how the boyfriend is invoking a familiar mythology of the hopes, dreams, and promises of different ex- experiential modes of freedom possible in the United States. The framing of her death in such terms underscores the failed promise of the nation's state. Is exclusion of any sector of the population from the rights and privileges guaranteed by the state, a failure of the state. Should we be viewing this as a failure of the state, not as a failure when you see an act of racism occur in public, not as an act that is an individual act by that person, but a failed act by the system of the entire state? 
Well, I'd say that uh, when I uh, suggest that, you know, the language of promise that Tamara uh, came to the United States to um, to experience uh, was, in fact, the very, um, uh, you know, it, it, it masked the very conditions that the U.S. as a nation state um, is founded on, right? That, like, part of what I, I'm getting at is that the U.S. is uh, a nation state, and not in an exceptional way, but in a very particular and violent way that I trace across the book, um, is a nation state that is premised upon exclusion of, of, of folks like Tamara. Um, and so, you know, even as we have a, a kind of rich rhetorical um, repertoire of language of freedom and rights and inclusion, um, this nation has also, and we have only seen it function by way of excluding particular groups from what it means to uh, uh, participate in the kind of project of U.S. citizenship. How dependent do you think our economic system is? How dependent do you think our our government is on that kind of exclusion? Well, I mean, if you're talking about the kind of contemporary moment, um, certainly uh, we're in a, a, a moment in capitalism in which uh, it is about a kind of uh, a massive dispossession of of human beings. Uh, you know, capitalism, uh, late capitalism, whether people call it neoliberalism or, or simply late capitalism, post-industrial late capitalism, all of these terms swirl around the idea that uh, to, to think about the kind of accumulation of wealth is to also give license to uh, a kind of uh, understanding of people as disposable. Um, and so if, we think of, so if we think about the kind of economic structures that are in place that gave rise to certain kinds of resistance movements most recently um, and spectacularly in um, 99% uh, movement, but we can also look, of course, across uh, history and and into the in in our our very present day to think about the kinds of uh, attacks on workers uh, the the kind of rise of uh, of animation as the kind of quote unquote good sense of what it means to uh, uh, good sense in in the kind of logic of capitalism um, but there have been so many. Um, important work. I'm thinking about the uh, the work that people have done on on uh, looking at the kind of global system of capitalism as already being entrenched in so many other modes of of this of of wealth accumulation based on human dispossession. Of course, the transatlantic slave trade being one of them. Um, and then and then when we talk about the kind of governmental picture. Uh, I was struck by the um, the teaser that you gave about the recent. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's passed or if it's just introduced anti-prostitution law in Chicago. Uh, but I mean, I think we're also uh, trying to think about what forms of regulation and policy uh, are, are are being posited as something for the public good. Um, in a moment where 
there's a, a great deal of confusion, I would say productive and generative confusion about who the person and who's a corporation. That is, there's so much in there. That was, that's like one of the best answers I've had to a question in a really long time. Thank you, Riley. Uh, so, uh, but this kind of gender variant exclusion, this isn't yeah. anything new. So is this trans cultural and societal exclusion finally being recognized, fin- finally being reported, or is it that trans people are finally being recognized as trans people? Yeah, that's a really um, fascinating question. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that, that we we would need to, to just uh, put on the table is uh, that, you know, we could say at least um, in, from the mid-1960s on, uh, there's been some sense that trans people exist, right, in the kind of fabric of, uh, neighborhoods and communities, uh, the kind of visibility of trans women in uh, the larger lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender movement um, is something that I don't think uh, it can be uh, denied or, or 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 effectively erased. And I'm, you know, specifically thinking about uh, figures like Marsha P. Johnson, Sylvia Rivera, uh, Sir Lady Java folks who were very, uh, and, and, and also including, I'd be remiss not to, na- to name a living, um, a, a living icon of Miss Major. Um, and so, you know, when we think about uh, a kind of uh, shorthanded as, quote, gay rights movement, um, that that often has, has been um, one in which uh, particularly trans women of color have been at the forefront of making uh, certain kinds of political demands. Um, but I think we're also living in a time in which, and, you know, the beginning in the uh, early mid-90s with the kind of uh, ritual uh, that has been uh, sometimes called Transgender Day of Remembrance, sometimes called Transgender Day of Resilience, um, that uh, that there is also a sense of what social media and and mass media uh, uh, has has uh, done is made visible the the ways that uh, trans people of color, particularly black and brown trans women, um, have been uh, subjected to uh, violence, a kind of violence uh, that um, has has resulted in numerous murders. Um, but I think part of what uh, I, I'm addressing in the preface of the book is that, yes, we live in a, in a landscape in which it's quite clear that um, trans women of color are incredibly vulnerable to, um, the mechani- to mechanisms of premature death, in which murder is not the only scale for which, in which we can think through how violence shapes black and brown trans people's lives. Uh, and so part of the project uh, in a kind of larger sense is to, to talk about what I think is a, um, a very complicated moment, a moment in which there are uh, 
figures who have uh, notoriety, celebrity. Uh, we also, uh, you know, are more and more aware of those who have been um, uh, victims of, of violence. Uh, but I think there's also a kind of uh, another picture uh, that we need to think about, which is kind of what I would, what what we might think of as a kind of mundane textures of violence that shape uh, black and brown trans folks' lives. Um, by which I mean um, the the I you know I immediately am thinking about that 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 uh, ordinance in Chicago as having a, a particular impact on trans women of color uh, who, because of, of modes of, of system, systematic discrimination, um, are often um, making use of sex work as a way to uh, support themselves in, 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 ways, in, in, the, in the ways that are available to them in a structure in which uh, underemployment is also an incredible issue, a kind of persistent characteristic of the, the of the way discrimination works in in this country. Size matters. Size matters. With Kyle Seismankowski. Ah, oh, Jesus. Yeah, the internet goes out here when it rains. That's pretty pathetic. It's like 90 degrees outside. There's no excuse for this. Well, thankfully, Shanna's kind of a technophile. A what? Well, that's someone who likes computers. That sounds awful. Well, she feels awful, so maybe that has something to do with it. How's it going over there, Shan? So, it seems like you guys should have plenty of bandwidth here. Are you kidding? Sheldon's getting married here, and all I can see is that girl with the big nose stuttering back and forth on my phone. Is the radio station using a ton of your internet? No, we barely have enough juice to get to the tower. We're getting killed here. What's with these blinking boxes back here? Well, Joel built us an array and a gateway. Hey, wait a second. What's this thing back here? It says, property of... Kyle Seismikowski! Hey Jess, wanna go grab something to eat? I am not spotting you. Whoa! Where'd you get that fat water bills? I got it from selling my Bridgeport simoleons. What? It's my new cryptic currency, only available in Undertown and a few local boneyards on the west side. A cryptocurrency? What the hell is that? No, it's cryptic currency. I got it off the internet at Eddie's place. I am pretty sure you mean cryptocurrency, Kyle. No, it's confusing, so it's cryptic. Like Bitcoin, right? Uh, I didn't think that you knew your way around a typewriter, much less uh, an emerging financial technology. The what now? For Bitcoin, you run a computer, or usually a lot of computers, and they do right. calculations, and that's uh-huh. how you get the Bitcoins. Right. People who do this stuff are data miners? They date miners? What kind of guy do you think I am? Kyle, how, how do you get the Bridgeport simoleons? This is the part that makes a lot of sense. A guy I found from one of Eddie's old magazines sent me this box, and he said it would make cryptocurrency. All I had to do was plug it in at the GoPro. Does Jamie know about this? What's there to know? See, the box uses the internet to give people the simoleons, and every week this guy comes and gives me cash. What guy? Who is this guy? Look at this water cash, Jess. All cryptic currency. I can't lose. Hey, Kyle, hold up. Oh, oh, hey. Yeah, I was just leaving. I was going to go check out this car fire down the block. You ain't going anywhere. 
the hell were you thinking, plugging that box into our internet? All right, I've been trying to explain to Jess it's for cryptic currency. It's like a malware spider, you moron. All right, let me level with you for a second. I don't really understand what you're talking about, and I probably wouldn't care even if I did, so tough. Cut the old and I don't understand routine, Kyle. It's been throttling our internet and sucking up the credit card numbers from everyone on Morgan Street and sending them to Latvia. What the heck were you thinking? So it's not cryptocurrency? Oh no, it's pretty clear. Kyle's little box just charged my credit card for a laptop. In Afghanistan. Hey, for once I had nothing to do with this. You wouldn't hit an old man, would you? The heck, I wouldn't. You owe us some money, Kyle. I got something better than cash. I bought $2,000 worth of hashtags. Hashtags? Kyle? Hashtags? Run. Hashtags? This week on The Trump Diaries, Trump's star is axed while Betsy DeVos's yacht is freed. Melania watches fake news. Michael Cohen drops a couple bombshells on his former boss. Cohen also leaks his tapes of the Donald. And Rudy claims collusion isn't a crime. Ha! Huh. These are The Trump Diaries. Day 553, July 26th. Michael Cohen released a recording of his conversations with Trump. Cohen allegedly has 120 such recordings, at least 12 of which were seized by the FBI. On the tape, Trump is heard discussing the purchase of rights to former Playboy model Karen McDougal's story about her alleged affair with him. Trump had previously denied having knowledge of the play made by the National Enquirer to catch and kill the piece in cahoots with owner David Pecker. But on the recording, Trump is heard if, quote, we should pay cash to McDougal. What do we got to pay for this, 150? Trump then muses that maybe McDougal will get hit by a truck. Trump responded on Twitter saying it is so sad Cohen reported their private conversations and claimed the tape was cut while I was presumably saying positive things. What kind of a lawyer would tape a client, Trump asked. I hear there are other clients and many reporters that are taped. Can this be so? Too bad. Trump must face a lawsuit accusing him of improperly profiting from his Washington hotel. U.S. District Judge Peter Massette denied a dismissal request after the Attorney Generals of Maryland and D.C. sued claiming that Trump is violating the Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause by taking payments from foreign governments at the Trump International Hotel in downtown Washington. Trump claimed that the FCC's decision to blow up the Sinclair Tribune merger, which would have created a local conservative-leading giant, was disgraceful. FCC Chair I.G. Pai, who had been under investigation for rules changes that allowed Sinclair to mount the bid in the first place, unexpectedly shot it down last week, saying it raised serious concerns and that Sinclair had lied about their intentions. His decision was cheered across the spectrum, saved by Trump, who said it was sad and unfair that the FCC didn't approve the merger that would have provided, quote, a conservative voice for and of the people. Sinclair has openly supported Trump with their must-run segments. Trump apparently went ape on Air Force One after finding his wife's TV tuned to CNN. Trump's standing rule is that all TVs on Air Force One should be tuned to Fox News whenever he's on board. The East Wing responded in a statement saying, quote, the First Lady will watch any channel she wants and Trump's star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame was destroyed by a man with a pickaxe. It's at least the second time that star has been attacked. The man, Austin Clay, was bailed out of jail by a man, James Otis, who had done the same thing to the star in 2017. Day 554, July 27th. Trump made a surprise announcement that the United States and the European Union had agreed to work on lowering tariffs. The European Union also agreed to import more U.S. soybeans, Trump called the development a new phase in their relationship. 
the House Freedom Caucus introduced articles of impeachment against Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. Representative Jim Jordan said, quote, the Justice Department is keeping information from Congress. Enough is enough. It's time to hold Mr. Rosenstein accountable for blocking Congress's constitutional oversight rule. The move is a piece of political theater. Jordan is seeking to run for the House leadership spot despite his role in a sex scandal in Ohio State while he was a wrestling coach. Paul Ryan called the move cavalier. The White House banned network reporter Caitlin Collins from the Rose Garden because of the questions she asked Trump during a photo op. Sarah Huckabee Sanders claimed that Collins shouted questions and refused to leave despite repeatedly being asked to do so. Collins' ouster was swiftly denounced by the other networks, including Fox. Collins was actually acting as head of the pool at the time, meaning she was asking questions for all networks. A federal grand jury subpoenaed the CFO of the Trump Organization to testify as a witness in the Cohen case. Alan Weisselberg's name was heard on a recently released audio recording. He is the longtime physical gatekeeper for Trump and has been with the Trump Organization since the 1980s. Someone untied Betsy DeVos's 163-foot yacht and sent it adrift on Lake Erie. The $400 million yacht hit a dock, causing large scratches and scrapes that are estimated to cost around $10,000 to repair. The yacht is one of 10 owned by the DeVos family. Day 555, July 28th. Michael Cohen dropped a bombshell saying Trump knew of Trump Jr.'s meeting with a Russian lawyer who promised dirt on Hillary Clinton in advance. Cohen claims that he, along with several others, were in the room when Trump Jr. told Trump about the Russian offer. According to Cohen, Trump approved the meeting with Russian lawyer Natalia Veselinashka. Trump has repeatedly denied this. Veselinashka was also revealed to have closer ties to top Russian officials. She worked as a speechwriter for several of them. Trump tweeted Cohen's statements were, quote, made up. Cohen told Robert Mueller he was willing to swear this under oath. The newspaper The Fayette Advocate of Ohio received emails from a whistleblower showing that the strip club arrest of Stormy Daniels was pre-planned. Voluminous emails show that Daniels was set up by a former community liaison officer and arrested under a law designed to stop human trafficking. The charges against Daniels were swiftly dropped. She's considering a suit against the police department. Daniels is suing Trump. Coca-Cola announced price hikes due to Trump's tariffs. The Atlanta company cited increased aluminium prices. Day 556, July 29th. Trump claimed he would shut down the government if, quote, Democrats don't give me votes for the wall. I would be willing to shut down governments for border security, which includes the wall. We must get rid of lottery, catch and release, etc., and finally go to a system of immigration based on merit. We need great people coming into our country. Trump also accused journalists of being driven insane by their Trump derangement syndrome. He claimed that journalists were very unpatriotic for their negative media coverage of his administration. Trump singled out the New York Times publisher A.G. Salzberger, who subsequently released details about what was a previously off-the-record meeting. Trump had claimed the two discussed the vast amounts of fake news being put up by the media and how fake news has morphed into the phrase, enemy of the people. Sad. Salzberger responded his main concern in the meeting was that Trump's language was, quote, not just divisive, but increasingly dangerous. I am far more concerned about his labeling journalists the enemy of the people. I warned that this language is contributing to a rise in threats against journalists and will lead to violence. I made clear repeatedly I was not asking him for him to soften his attacks on the Times and he thought our coverage was unfair. Instead, I implored him to reconsider his broader attacks on journalism, which I believe are dangerous and harmful to our country. Alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani claimed on Fox and Friends that collusion is not a crime. That is a remarkable assertion from a man who reportedly represents a city president. Said Giuliani, I don't even know if that's a crime colluding about Russians. I've been looking in the federal code trying to find collusion as a crime. While the word collusion does not appear in a statute, collaborating with foreign governments to influence an election is treason. Obstructing justice is a federal crime. 
Trump tweeted after Giuliani's performance, there is no collusion and the witch hunt is an illegal scam. Giuliani also called Michael Cohen a pathological liar and a manipulator after Cohen leaked audio of the president and alleged Trump knew about Trump Jr.'s meetings with Russian nationals well in advance. Three months ago, Giuliani called Cohen an honorable man. Acting EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler vacated the agency's decision not to impose a pollution cap on so-called glider trucks. Those are vehicles with older and less efficient engines installed to reuse them. Scott Pruitt's last act was to leave a loophole for the highly polluting vehicles. Trump has issued 38 permits, allowing 33 hunters to import African lion trophies into the United States. Over half those permits went to donors of the Republican Party or to Trump personally. Day 557, July 30th. The Koch brothers criticized the Republican Party and the Trump administration for their divisiveness and tremendous lack of leadership. In a statement, Charles Koch said he regrets supporting some Republicans who, quote, say they're going to be for these principles that we espouse, and they aren't. The White House is causing long-term damage. Koch said his network will be much stricter with their financial support in the future. Trump fired back on Twitter, quote, the globalist Koch brothers who have become a total joke in real Republican circles are against strong borders and powerful trade. I never sought their support because I don't need their money or bad ideas. Trump claimed, not without cause, that the Kochs pour money into politics to avoid paying taxes. The Boston Globe revealed the government has been secretly monitoring U.S. citizens when they fly since 2010 as part of a secret program called Quiet Skies. The program targets travelers who are not under investigation by any agencies and are not in the terrorist screening database. Quiet Sky says United States Marshals tail passengers based on body cues. The program was leaked by whistleblowers in the Marshals who feel the program is illegal. And Trump said he'd be willing to meet with Iranian President Hassan Rouhani. I'm a big believer in meetings, said Trump. Rouhani replied, quote, there will definitely not be the possibility of dialogue and engagement. The United States has shown that it is totally unreliable. Day 558, July 31st. The trial of Paul Manafort on money laundering and crimes against the United States began today. Manafort, who is Trump's former campaign manager, has been identified as a key player in the Russian Trump scandal. Facebook announced it has identified a coordinated political influence campaign with dozens of inauthentic accounts and pages devoted to divisive political activity. The company told Congress it detected the influence campaign on Facebook and Instagram as part of its investigations into election interference. Facebook believes Russia is involved. In its statement, Facebook said it first discovered the 32 accounts two weeks ago. North Korea is reportedly building new nuclear missiles despite recent warming ties to the United States and pledges to denuclearize. Spy satellites have spotted continuing activity at a site that has produced ballistic missiles in the past. It is unclear how far that work has progressed. Trump is considering bypassing Congress and using Treasury powers to grant a $100 billion tax cut to the ultra-wealthy by slashing the capital gains tax. The move, which is legally uncertain and is sure to draw lawsuits, would also reinforce the critique of the Republican Party as the party of the ultra-wealthy. Any change in capital gains taxes would overwhelmingly benefit the top 1% of taxpayers. Jeff Session announced that the Department of Justice is creating, quote, a religious liberty tax force to, quote, ensure all Justice Department components are upholding Trump's executive order to respect and protect religious liberty and political speech. Day 559, August 1st. Trump called on Jeff Sessions to end the special counsel investigation, an extraordinary appeal to an official who has recused himself from that investigation. Mueller's investigation is growing tighter around Trump as many believe Mueller is close to announcing that the president obstructed justice and colluded with a foreign government. Trump's former campaign manager's trial began yesterday. A federal judge placed a nationwide injunction on blueprints for so-called ghost guns. 
Cody Wilson, a tech and gun advocate, have been planning to release blueprints online that would have allowed anyone to print untraceable guns using a 3D printer. Trump had reversed an Obama-era decision to allow the guns to be printed. Trump is considering a second sharp reduction in the number of refugees who can be resettled in the United States, scaling back a program intended to offer protection to the world's most vulnerable people. Stephen Miller, who is the architect of Trump's anti-immigration agenda, is ready to sign off on the cuts of up to 40%. Under one plan being discussed, no more than 25,000 refugees could be resettled in the U.S. next year. It would be the lowest number of refugees admitted to the country since the creation of the program in 1980. Russia's top diplomat claimed his country has access to insider information about U.S. military plans. He provided no specifics. Trump is now lagging badly in key Midwestern swing states that he won in 2016. He is below 38% approval ratings in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Minnesota. In somewhat related news, CEOs have granted themselves unprecedented paydays since Trump's tax cuts went into effect. U.S. companies have spent some $600 billion in stock buybacks, while worker pay has slipped or remained stagnant. These are the Trump Diaries. I-94 spoke with Adam Morgan, the editor-in-chief of the Chicago Review of Books, which recently reissued Henry B. Fuller's The Cliff Dwellers. Morgan and the boys discussed the pioneering Chicago melodrama, its problematic scenes today, and how to judge fiction at a historical remove. I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show, airs every Sunday at 11 a.m. What attracted you, first of all, about this book, other than it's a seminal Chicago novel, and why have you decided to, to bring out more of these books, Adam? Sure. So the thing that really attracted me to this novel in particular is that when we launched the press, we wanted to bring back uh, these books uh, about Chicago and that were you know, really influential in Chicago literature. Um, and this was the earliest one that really made a national impact. So chronologically speaking, it made sense to start uh, with this one. Um, but then also, Henry Blake Fuller himself was just such uh, an influential figure uh, in Chicago and you know nationally, um, not just because of this book. Um, this book obviously made a huge impact and kind of established him as a as a powerful guy in, in American literature um, in the 1890s. But also, he went on to um, he was you know Harriet Monroe's sort of right hand man, um, editing and printing Poetry Magazine um, in the 1910s and the 1920s. Um, so we just had a really big footprint here. He actually had a studio in this building that we're sitting in right now, the Fine Arts Building downtown. Are we sitting in a studio? We are sitting, uh, I don't know that this was a studio. I, I'm not sure what it was at the time. Up that way? Okay. He but, actually published a short story called Under the Skylights. It mm -hmm. takes place right here in this building. So. Yes, it does indeed. Um, so yeah, he was just a fascinating uh, person. And a very handsome person as well, if you've ever seen um, a photo of him. Um, and uh, it was just a really fascinating book that has, it still sort of has you know, a name cachet here in Chicago because of the Cliff Dwellers Club um, a few blocks uh, north of us here as well. Really, the book was meant very um, consciously to be an indictment of capitalism um, and an indictment of the sort of very fast uh, industrialization um, that Chicago was going through at the time and how it just kind of sucked in all these people from the East Coast and just spit them back out. Um, even though uh, Fuller himself was actually very wealthy and came from a very wealthy family. Real estate um, family, correct? Uh, bankers, I bankers. think. Uh, I think bankers, um, his grandfather uh, moved from the Boston area uh, to Chicago and then 
um, his father was actually the, one of the first guys um, who started the, the first trolley system uh, in Chicago. So a very wealthy family. Fuller was born uh, a few blocks from where we're sitting right now at uh, LaSalle and Van Buren um, at the old, well, it hadn't, it wasn't there yet, but now it's gone. Uh, the LaSalle Street Station um, that was over there. Um, so yeah, a, a wealthy guy who comes from a lot of money, but um, this book and the next Chicago-based novel that he wrote after this, two years later in 1895, uh, with the procession, was also very much an indictment of uh, Chicago capitalism. Was he related to Margaret Fuller? Not that I'm aware He's, of. She was, she was the first editor-in-chief of The Dial, the publication The Dial, I think. I think so. And did they, and did they publish? So I... Cliftwell? I'm not a... No, I'm not a, an Mary's expert shaking on, her head, no. on Fuller or The Dial, but I think Margaret Fuller was the editor of The Dial before its uh, iteration in Chicago. Um, so back when it was on in okay. Boston or on the gotcha. East Coast. Gotcha. Um, I could be wrong, but I think... Can we talk at all about future Chicago books that Chicago Review Books are going to be reprinting, or is that something you want to keep... Sure, I, can, well I can't confirm what the next one is going to be because we ran into a hiccup. The next one was going to be um, Maud Martha um, by Gwendolyn Brooks. Uh, we even signed the contract with the Brooks estate, but it turns out they sent the contract uh, by mistake. <laughs> so, Sorry, that's not funny. That's yeah. not going to be the next uh, book. I think we will be able to publish an excerpt uh, online, but right now it's, it's between um, Margaret Anderson's uh, first biography, um, who was the editor of the Little Review here in this building um, and was a friend of, you know, she knew Fuller. Uh, and she went on to publish Ulysses um, once they had moved out of Chicago. But um, it's between her biography and uh, a book called Knock on Any Door yes. yeah. um, by yeah, Willard yeah, yeah. Motley. But back advocate of that book. So, oh, nice. Yeah, nice. Yeah. We've but talked both, about it many times on oh, the show. Oh, cool. So. Nice. But both of those are, uh, you know, getting publishing rights um, from estates and, and surviving family members is always, and, and publishers is always a complicated process, especially when you don't have much money like we do. So, um, yeah. I just want to put out a, I want to be an advocate for that novel. It's fantastic. It's an unappreciated, under uh, looked at novel by an, a very amazing African-American author from Chicago named Willard Motley. And he actually ended up um, becoming a little bit, uh, I would say now you call it right wing in his views. He was uh, against assimilation um, and some other things. And he kind of got pushed off to the side in the same way Zora Neale Hurston did because she was not, um, he was not uh, interested in the civil rights movement and their cause. So it was, uh, both those writers were, although Zora Neale Hurston has always been popular, were um, alienated by their peers because of their political beliefs. Mm-hmm. Getting back and, to oh, the, I'm the sorry, too. Willard Motley was also gay, correct? I'm not sure. I don't know a lot biographically about Motley yet. Um, I believe he was. I think Motley was, yeah. yeah. I think he was. Well, we, we always talk about gay authors in this show. Yes. It's one of the things we do. Getting back to this book, one of the interesting things about this book for, let's be honest, it, it is a melodrama. It's kind of dated. Mm-hmm. If, I think if anybody is going to read this book and, and look at it, um, there are things about it structurally that we would find very antique today. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that dialogue is presented, for example, is presented in a style that was very popular back then but we would find it a little muddled and not as straightforward. Uh, I think if you guys leaf through a couple of the chapters, you'll, you'll see what I'm saying. It's not a knock in the book. It's just a, a note about the historical period. What was 
interesting to me as a, as a Chicago city dweller, though, uh, especially during the early going, was how spread out the city was at this time. There's a number of descriptions, uh, and we joke about this, I think, now that, for example, we're, we live down in Bridgeport. We joke that if, you, if you're down in Bridgeport, it's so hard to get to Rogers Park or Logan Square. People tend to stay in their neighborhoods. Well, in this book, people really did stay in their neighborhoods. Uh, they talk about going even further west, and west, by the way, would be like from here to Damon. And that was, that was an epic trip of weeks, you know what I mean? People didn't come back from those trips. There's a number, you know, I don't know what the heck was going on in Humboldt Park. You may be able to answer that. They had country houses. Yes, well, they did. Mm. You know. And horses. Uh, and horses. But pe people went west, basically, uh, and, and didn't come back. There's a number of interesting passages in this book about how, uh, especially in terms of social engagements, people would do tours of various houses in the town, Debs were presented, people's daughters would be attempted to make matches and all that stuff, but it was very uh, geographically confined. And I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, Adam, because that's something that we don't even think about nowadays. You know, we have cars, we go all over the place. You know, none of this really comes up, but it was very spread out and with reason at that point. Yeah, it was. It was very balkanized um, in terms of, you know, you, you, you knew the people in your neighborhood and you typically worked in your neighborhood and... Um, and yeah, it would be a, a long trek to even get uh, the the main character. Uh, well, he's sort of the main character. He's, if there's a if there's, if there's a hero in this book, it's it's George Ogden um, from Boston, and he moves here. And he, at the beginning, he moves into Union Park, uh, which is where Pitchfork is going to be. Um, is it this weekend? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, um, right now, in fact. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah, no, it's tomorrow. Yeah, but it's they're setting up. No? So right now. Um, Anyway, he moves to Union Park, and then the the his his boss and sort of the the social circle that he starts to get involved with uh, is in River North, um, and they talk about well we're never going to see you right you'll never see anyone you won't go to any of the the good parties and stuff because you're you know way out there. I think back in then Iowa, they called it basically. the North Side. They called the, it what? The North Side. Yeah, the North Side. Yeah, Tower Town, um, I guess. Um, so yeah, it was you know you'd have to get on a horse and carriage. Um, to get, especially uh, east-west, uh, there were you know some um, streetcar systems like the LaSalle um, tunnel and stuff that people would use to get around downtown. But uh, yeah, yeah, you stayed where you you stayed where you lived. Chris, you mentioned Tower Town, which it came up in the last or two books ago. Uh, yeah, Three or four more than that. Ago? Yeah, Boys of Fairy Town. Boys of Fairy Town. Mm -hmm. Tower oh, Town yeah. was uh, the gay district in Chicago at the turn of the century. Uh, also, an arts district. Um, one of the most Bohemia. vibrant, yeah, Bohemia. the Bohemia yeah. of, of Chicago, and that was basically where Old Town is. That was called Tower Town. So, uh, if you're thinking that Tower Town was far away from where you are right now, let that sink in, because it's it's really not. You can probably walk there. So, I wanted to share a, just a quick passage from Jesse, who is ends up becoming uh, George Ogden's mm. wife, yeah. and she's spoiler. Uh, it's not a spoiler. <laughs> oh yeah, that is a spoiler. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Bad things also happened, which yes, is also a spoiler. They got okay. married. I apologize. It's this book okay. did come out in 1893. Yes. Yes. So yeah. It's hard to spoil a book that's yeah, that around. You may have not heard of the story of Jesse and George. But, um, <laughs> but she's talking about Chicago, and she says, Perhaps you think that there are not any nice people in Chicago. I heard that remark made. Well, there are, I can tell you, just as nice as anywhere. I suppose you've noticed the way the papers 
here have of collecting all the mean, hateful things that the whole country says about us and making a column out of them. And I just laughed because, you know, sh- we still do that. This is happening right now. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. The apricot toddler is obsessed with Chicago. You know, he tweets about it all the time. And what oh, is that? Donald Trump. Oh. Yeah, that's what the British press were calling him. The, Sorry. The apricot toddler. Sorry. Yeah. The Cheeto Jesus, whatever you want to call him. But a little, little too inside baseball there. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, people rip on Chicago all the time. All they talk about is the violence here. They don't talk about anything, you know, unless you're here. You know, like people think we just live in igloos and shoot at each other. If you, sh- if you moved to... Um, or, I mean, if you travel, I've, I've done a lot of traveling. And um, I remember I was in a cab in Egypt, and the guy, I got in the cab, and he's like, Chicago, ha, 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 you know, and I'm just like, yeah, we don't do that, but some, <laughs> it's, it's really okay. But we do have this, you know, reputation. It seems like, you know, it's been going on this, with, since, you know, the city was being built and, and beyond. And I was just, wanted to throw that out there because when I was reading that I just started laughing because yeah and uh Fuller had a very love-hate relationship with Chicago I mean he was born here went to schools here growing up uh and lived here for most of his life but he traveled in Europe a lot um and traveled to New York a lot and um he he wanted to sort of through his fiction he wanted to sort of uh break the chains between uh, you know shackling Chicago to New York as like a second city and shackling the United States to Europe as sort of a you know a colony still in a lot of people's minds at least culturally speaking um, and so he tried to do that a lot through his fiction but he also sort of hated Chicago and couldn't stop complaining about it all the time which you get you get a sense of that uh, kind of like Algren Algren was like yeah, that yeah yeah <laughs> Radio Free also welcomed members of Martin Van Ruen into the studio. The duo played three songs off their upcoming release, Current Day. This selection, White Noise, was recorded live in Studio B. It's called White Noise. Save your soul Nobody's gonna save it for you Don't lose control Pride and paranoia Name your price Stop running from the afternoon Take a while Before tomorrow is a dusty room Over white, white noise I can't find my Voice over white, white noise I can't find my voice Got caught in a jam all by myself I thought I'd be standing somewhere else Got caught in a jam, my hands were tangled My feet were dangling over the well Over white, white noise so nobody's gonna save it for you I remember feeling whole as the ground broke up below us You said hear that sound, the 
There's a flag we left on the moon Won't take that long Before they move on from you Produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN-LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. Lump and Week in Review is overseen by Logan Bay. Produced and engineered by Jamie Trecker. The Lump and Theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lump and Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lump and Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpin' Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpinradio.com. Mm-hmm.